0: This week on the Saber.com podcast, there's a leader in the quarterback race. We talk defensive backs and other football headlines. For basketball, will Tony Bennett get to 300 wins or 100 losses first at Virginia? And in the music segment, we look at musical offspring.
1: Let's go. The online source for the serious Wahoo fan, the saber.com All right, time for another thesaber.com podcast. Jeff Sweatman, your host. We'll talk a little music. In the final segment of the show, tribute to Justin Towns Earl, which might branch off into a discussion of other uh, famous offspring. We'll talk about defensive backs, uh, UVA football news there, and uh, maybe a little men's basketball as well as we welcome in Chris Wright and Chris Horn from the saber.com. Gentlemen, hello, and uh, right off the bat, let's just go through some quick football uh, news and notes. Uh, looks like we're still cautiously optimistic the uh, the season's going to get going here. Uh, opening with Tech, no replacement yet for uh, VMI. Have you guys heard anything along those lines?
0: Yeah, Coach Mendenhall said they're not, as of right now, the last he heard, they are not pursuing a replacement for VMI. So that means the season opens in Blacksburg on September the 19th. So. Um, we speculated a little bit about that on a recent episode. What would that look like? Um, you know, like like what what, what would that mean? You quarterback. Uh, they have a game first, NC State. What would that mean? So it looks like all of that is playing out. That all those questions we have will be asked a bunch over the next three weeks.
1: Well, and Chris Horn uh, talks some about the uh, folks that have opted out. We don't necessarily know who, but uh, I guess we might know one or two of the, mm-hmm. the who's that have opted out, and then. There's been a a waiver denied, and uh, talk about those things here.
2: Yeah, um, uh, Coach Mendenhall delivered some unfortunate news last Friday. um, At that running back position, you mentioned the waiver. um, That's for Ronnie Walker, Jr., who's the Indiana running back transfer. Um, You know, he's he's a Hopewell Virginia native. I think most people expected him to uh, get that waiver uh, to be able to play immediately. Um, But that was denied. So they have um, appealed that decision. And uh, Coach Mendenhall is pretty, pretty clear that he didn't agree with the initial decision. So they're waiting, uh, awaiting the word on that appeal. And then other news at running back is that Mike Hollins is one of those five who have opted out of this, uh, this coming season. So that really leaves running back uh, really thin. You have Wayne Talapapa, who has uh, a lot of experience and and performed pretty well last year, averaging about carry and scoring about twelve touchdowns. Um, and then you have Shane Simpson, uh, <laughs> whose arrival couldn't be better, really, uh, with uh, with the Holland's news and the and the Walker news. He's the uh, uh, former All American, all purpose running back out of Towson. Um, so he's he is basically it's Simpson and Talapapa as the scholarship guys at running back, and then. Uh, you have some walk-ons who uh, are kind of make up the, the remainder of the depth at that position. So, between uh, you know the running back stuff and then uh, Dontavian Wicks, the promising receiver, now out for the season with a with an injury. Um, you know, running back and receiver definitely um, uh, have gotten a little thinner or a lot <laughs> a lot thinner as of uh, last Friday.
1: So, Chris Wright, talk about round two of the uh, jersey numbers being picked.
0: This past weekend, they had a second group of 27 players pick jersey numbers, um, and there will be another round uh, soon, I think, that will get you up to kind of the the most the, – the, the biggest chunk of the roster, right? So the big ones coming out of this round were guys who are already on the depth chart or guys who contributed a little bit last year. Um, so like a Bobby Haskins at offensive line, he was one of the ones that had not picked yet because he had an injury earlier in the preseason. Um, he picked Jawan Briggs, defensive line, played a lot last year. He hadn't picked yet. Uh, Billy Kemp, Tavares Kelly, uh, guys like that at receiver hadn't picked yet, so, so they were able to pick. Um, you know, lots of familiar names in round two. I didn't see any super big surprises. Um, may, maybe the one that, that is a big surprise is Aaron Famui. Defensive lineman was one of the best pass rushers on the team last year. He has not picked a jersey yet. And although it hasn't been officially announced, we're hearing that he's one of the five that opted out. So um, at some point we'll get official news on that, but because he hasn't picked a number yet and he's he's a borderline starter, if not um, a definite starter potentially, then uh, that that seems kind of strange, right? So I think when you put two and two together, uh, he's probably one of the ones that's not here.
1: What about uh, Kemp and Kelly and maybe some other names that have been – uh, making leaps during these uh, initial sessions. Are you guys hearing any rumblings there? Christina? Yeah, well,
2: Coach Mendenhall mentioned uh, uh, Billy Kemp, the fourth, who has um, as one of two players, and Tavares Kelly was in that conversation as well. So Kemp and Kelly, um, two guys who are playing very well, apparently early on in camp, which is huge given the the news regarding uh, Dontavian Wicks. Um, I think we've spoken about Billy Kemp, the fourth, uh, a few times here on the show, uh, you know, I think he had a good a good season last year. I love his competitive spirit, um, uh, really gets after it and doesn't shy away from anybody. And I think he took a, a step forward last year production-wise with over 30 catches. Tavares Kelly's kind of a always kind of been a guy who you're kind of looking for more out of. Um, he started at uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, which is a, a really top high school football program in the state of Florida. And he uh, has the speed and he kind of, you know, he he gets you excited, but he's really lacked consistency uh, the past – or his his first two years. So, it's a good sign, I think, that he's coming – maybe coming on. And certainly this is his chance. This is his third year in the program. So, it's almost kind of getting to almost now or never territory. But with – again, with Wicks going out, I mean, they definitely need some receivers to step up. Uh, You have Terrell Jana. Billy Kent the fourth I think those are the two real solid guys so if Tavares Kelly can become that consistent threat in the the receiving core that, that's going to be huge in addition to um you know coach Mendenhall said Rayshon Henry uh continues to continues to look pretty good and he brings a little bit more size uh at 6-3 as well
1: very good and uh some grad transfers on the depth chart already whether it's defense running back wide receiver tight end so what would you guys read into that if anything at this point
0: right the thing that that came to mind with me as coach Mendenhall has said a couple times uh during the course of the 2019 season that Bryce Perkins really accelerated the growth of the program like he he gassed it up and got it going faster um, than maybe it would have and I think there are still some spots here and there on the roster that um are not fully established or can't um take the brunt of a loss as well as some other positions can. So like running back had a bunch of transfers out. Well then Mike Collins uh opts out suddenly you only have two scholarship guys right and one of those two scholarship guys is a grad transfer and Shane Simpson I think Chris mentioned that positions like that that the roster still needs um some support spots um in there running backs one wide receiver a little bit um particularly with Wick's injury tight end um was one there was a big gap between uh, Grant Mish, who got a lot of uh, experience last year, down to true freshman walk-ons, people like that. You have Tony Poljan come in. That's a big one. Even defensive back last year had so many injuries uh, by the end of the year. So having another guy like a D'Angelo Amos from JMU in the mix um, gives you, I guess, insurance or extra depth or what, or whatever in that spot. So, um, yeah, I think it's, it's more about the roster continues to evolve and get better and better depth at each position, but there's still a few little potential cracks here and there.
1: We had talked uh, about the quarterback situation way back when we did kind of a preview of this uh, podcast when we were first getting going. So let's bring everybody up to speed here in case they missed that one. Or what are the new developments? Uh, Brendan Armstrong leading the, the quarterback race so far looks like. So what do you think has put him uh, in the lead, Chris Horn?
2: well i think um, just the uh, one thing that stands to my mind is that armstrong has been in the program uh since he arrived with uh bryce perkins and uh, and i think he's really been preparing uh, for the moment of him you know taking over as starting quarterback uh since then he's he's uh you know put his head down worked uh, showed flashes of, of good poise and the ability to make plays on when he's been a- been able to get on the field. So I think um, that and just having the grasp of the offense and just give the circumstances um, obviously did no favors for Keaton Thompson coming in. Um, uh, you know, well, I don't think he was able to, I believe he arrived in, uh, you know, obviously June or July and uh, you know, hasn't been able to kind of maybe work as closely with the receivers and maybe as as he would like because of the COVID-19 circumstances. So, all of that kind of get, you know, I think Brendan Armstrong would have had to really not play well at all uh, to uh, to not be the favorite at this point. Um, that being said, we've heard some good things about Keaton Thompson, just in, in, especially in terms of his athletic ability. Um, and I think he's in a situation where I think he's going to be able to help because of his size and his legs um and who knows you know some other things they may come up uh, with for him but he's gonna they're, they're, he's gonna be able to help out early and, and maybe some situational type stuff and then as he as the season progresses and as he gets more and more comfortable with the playbook then I think that's going to help him as well so I think it might benefit him certainly if, if even if he's not named the starter um right away and he's going to be 99 I believe so that's uh, a <laughs> number 99 out there on the field. So that's uh, pretty interesting, and then Ira Armstead, the true freshman, uh, maybe making a little bit of, you know, positive noise, which is a good sign for the future, and he's he's number 98, so uh, some good number choices there, too.
0: And to, piggy- to piggyback a little bit, apparently that's a traditional thing now. Brendan Armstrong was number 98 as a true freshman, so now Armstead carrying on a tradition of sorts, all of a sudden, number 98 for true freshman quarterback, and apparently Thompson might be a, uh, a judge fan from the Yankees, so that might be where that tie-in is, but the things to me that put Armstrong there, just to build on what Chris said, one, his experience. Right now, um, at least through the first part of camp, Keaton Thompson was on a limited playbook still. So you limit your whole team by putting him in versus Armstrong, at least currently. There are still three weeks before they play football. So <laughs> that's why I think right now is a caveat, but that's a pretty significant deal. You have a lot of guys back elsewhere on the roster, including Armstrong. You don't want to limit everyone else while you're getting Keaton up to the speed based on potential. I don't, I don't think you're in a position to do that, particularly with only conference games uh, on the schedule. So that's one. The other one, I think, is the throwing. You know, I, From what I'm understanding and, and hearing kind of through the grapevine is Armstrong's really got it going in practice. He's connecting a lot of his passes. Is, he's just better in that category so far than Keaton Thompson is. So um, I think that's what give him, gives him the lead at, at this juncture. While saying there's still three weeks to play football.
2: Yeah, I definitely didn't want to um, take away from Brennan's talent. Certainly, he, he's confident, um, and he's kind of reminds me a little bit of Matt Schaub. He's a quick decision maker and confident in his decisions. He or he seems to be confident in his decisions. Um, so certainly, yeah, he's he's making some plays uh, in camp, and and it's good to see that you know they bring in a, a guy who has a pretty good tr- you know track record in Thompson. Uh, you know, maybe not college proven, but. Uh, good track record out of Louisiana as a high schooler, um, and you know I don't think Armstrong—he doesn't seem to have batted an eyelash at all—and he's uh, he's really rose to the ch- to the challenge, and uh, they seem to be making each other better. So I think it's a it's a good situation, um, good situation all around. And yeah, the, uh, yeah, I agree with Chris—the uh, the passing I think is the big thing, um, and it's something that I think Keaton struggled with a little bit at Mississippi State uh, in terms of consistency and accuracy.
1: Was there a scenario with Thompson's uh, skill set and that uh, running back depth that we were just talking about—maybe some wildcat formation where you use him as as a running back or, you know, halfback or something. Does he have any experience there, or uh, you know, what do you guys think of that?
0: I am firmly firmly in the camp that both will play, and I think that you could use Thompson situationally. I keep, you know, I've said it on the message boards, I've said it elsewhere best seat in the house, radio, things like that. The the connect model at Duke where Cutcliffe would bring him in and short yardage, goal line situations, et cetera, he would rattle off double-digit rushing touchdowns as the backup quarterback <laughs> being used just in those scenarios. So I think there's a role here for Thompson, regardless of how the race itself plays out.
2: Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And uh, um, 6'4", 225 pounds, and he proved that you – yeah, know, I mentioned – his inconsistency in terms of accuracy with passing but he he proved that he can run the football at Mississippi State um I believe he averaged uh six seven yards a carry somewhere in that range and his size kind of reminds me of like say Logan Thomas at Virginia Tech some of those bigger quarterbacks who you know especially as the game wears on um they're just tough to bring down you know the defense is worn out and gas and trying to bring those big big quarterback running quarterbacks down is uh is a chore so but yeah definitely situational football short yardage situations um it seems like a natural fit to me plus uh you know if he can run more you know that uh, that lessens the chance of Armstrong getting injured which is uh, obviously big uh, big as well
1: although we've heard some uh, rumblings uh, or feedback about Armstrong being a better runner than people think so what have you guys heard about that
0: Yeah, hey, coach Jay, the Uh, offensive line coach was on with us recently and he brought it up toward the end of an answer, just kind of on his own. I'd hate for people to underestimate uh, Vernon Armstrong as a runner. (laughs) And he's not the first one to do that over the course of these zoom calls from March, April through now, it's something that just kind of pops up. Right. So um, I think it was the offensive lineman that, that uh, a couple of reporters asked uh, give us a scouting report on Keaton Thompson, right. Or, Uh, how's Keaton Thompson doing, or something like that? And within that answer, somebody went, um, well, Keaton Thompson is really dynamic, but so is Brendan Armstrong, right? So there's these little hints of, you know, he's not Bryce Perkins. I'm not sure we've seen anybody at Virginia who is at the quarterback position, (laughs) right? That dynamic of an athlete hurdling over guys at full stride, right? It wasn't like a gather himself hurdle when he when he hurdled those guys, it was like, What? (laughs) Armstrong's not that, but I think the team is kind of letting little leaks out that, hey, like he's not going to you know, Superman over someone and keep running, but he can gobble up some yards.
2: Yeah, we've seen it. Uh, he's shown it in game situations that he can run the football. Um, that being said, uh, Bryce Perkins is one of the toughest quarterbacks I've seen uh, in a long time as far as just taking hits. And the one at Georgia Tech uh, his first year where it looked like that he was done for the season. I mean, I think <laughs> uh, when he got uh, – I think his leg rolled up on, he just got crushed. Um, but he came he, – he just kept coming back and coming back. And he was just such a tough, tough guy. And you just don't want uh, – you know, I think Armstrong certainly can run the football. My thing is, you know, <laughs> especially with his passing ability, um, I don't think you want him taking too many hits if it if it can be avoided.
1: Along those lines, what about escapability for both of those guys, um, you know, in terms of just avoiding the rush and, and, you know, trying to stay in the pocket as long as they can. But uh, one's a lefty, one's a righty. What do you think, Chris Wright, on that account?
0: Again, we talked to Coach J and that was something that he mentioned, that it's pretty much the same for the offensive line in terms of the style of offense – the things they're trying to do on offense, a lot of that hasn't changed from Bryce Perkins to whoever is, is under center right now or in shotgun right now. To get so hab- habitual saying under center, um, they're rarely under center. So whoever's in shotgun right now, um, one thing he did mention, though, is that Armstrong's a lefty, Thompson's a righty. The offensive line has to keep that in mind, that their escape lanes, when things break down, might go to their strong hand. Right, so it's just something to keep in mind, particularly if they end up playing both at times. um, The offensive line is going to have to be in tune, uh, instinctually, and react to the guys uh, that that
1: are back there. Chris Horn, would you say uh, is the offensive line stronger on one side or the other, or or are we not committing to that just yet? (laughs) (laughs) I want to put you on the spot. (laughs)
2: Well, they should be. I think um, I think Coach uh, Tujay mentioned that Bobby Haskins was um, out, and he's a tackle uh, who I think UVA is going to rely on. But it sounds like they're pretty pleased with the front the starting unit as well as the depth um in camp i think they mentioned uh, the coaches mentioned that um you know coach menhall specifically was talking about the running game and how this is the really the first year that they can practice the way they want to the running game because they have a fully healthy offensive line and the in the offensive line depth that they have so that it sounds, you know, that it's continued, you know, I think they ended last season on a good note, the offensive line, and I think they're coming in and it sounds like they're picking up where they left off last season. And, you know, I'm kind of still waiting to see that dominant experienced offensive line. I haven't seen that quite yet, but uh, it sounds like some positive things coming out and hopefully that will bode well also for the quarterbacks where they don't have to be Bryce Perkins-esque in terms of uh, uh, his capability. Um, and you know, again, he's he was he was a rare guy as far as uh, with all the athletic abilities that he has.
1: Well, some fans probably saw the footage of uh, Chase Young dispatching the uh, Washington offensive lineman with uh, little it just throwing these huge guys away like it was nothing. So it just you know, those offensive linemen, man, so important because if your quarterback is just going them down in a heap every uh, every down it's it's tough to watch. So we'll uh, we'll keep the faith and we'll get into some uh, DB talk defensive backs next on the Sabre.com podcast. It's your number one online source as a Virginia fan. The saber.com back for another segment of the Sabre.com podcast. Jeff Sweatman, your host along with Chris Horn and Chris Wright of the saber.com. Let's talk defensive backs, guys. A lot of experience there for the Hoos this year, but how is it all kind of coming together here in camp? Chris Wright, you want to go first?
0: Yeah, this is one of the more interesting positions on the team. Um, I think you know Chris mentioned that before we were recording here, and it's something you kind of see on the message boards a little bit, something that I've been rolling around in my own head. If Nick Grant is considered almost a guaranteed starter, he started every game last year at corner, how does the rest of it look, right? Because a lot of the the experience is concentrated at safety. You've got Brent Nelson, Joey Blunt, and uh, Devontae Cross all back. D'Angelo Amos from JMU is a, is a senior grad transfer. They're all concentrated at safety as far as we know, right? So how does that work? Is somebody a hybrid a la Chris Moore? Right, who transferred out of the program. He was a little bit of a linebacker safety hybrid sort of deal. Who starts opposite at corner, right? Is it someone who we thought might start last year, Darius Bratton? Is it Heskin Smith, who was uh, big at the back end of the season, particularly in the Virginia Tech game? Is it someone we're not thinking of, like a Cohen King, a walk-on that earned a number pick early? Um, how does all that mix together? It's a very fascinating question, I think.
2: The cornerback specifically has definitely um, been on my mind because it looks like UVA is just stacked at safety, obviously provided that Brenton Nelson and Joey Blount, who have had their share of injury uh, situations in the past, um, if they can stay healthy, I thought Devontae Cross was a natural fit at safety last year. So you have those guys and then um, some some other um quality depth in antonio clary and some other guys and amos from jmu who chris mentioned um so safety looks pretty pretty solid and then cornerback again yet nick grant Darius bratton's got the experience and he's but he's coming off uh an acl injury last year seems to be doing well he's playing so that's good um heskin smith um i thought he was solid last year i don't know if he's got star potential but he was solid um uh, you know he's a little on the small side and then and then you have uh, Jalon Baker uh, who played against North Carolina but they really didn't see that much more time he may need still another year just in terms of strength and conditioning so uh, you know Darnell Pratt's kind of a guy who's, who made the move from receiver to the defensive backfield he's got good size on him uh, at 6'2 185 kind of he's got a number now so I'm kind of interested to see if that means anything maybe he's a guy that surprises us maybe like Chris mentioned uh, Cohen King is another guy who can uh, maybe emerge or maybe it's somebody else we're not even talking about at this point so that's that's definitely going to be interesting to see who lines up at the two corner spots um, you know when the season starts
0: the other thing to remember here is formation Virginia is a three-4 base team but they throw all kinds of stuff out there and coach Papinga, one of the co defensive coordinators told us recently that they're gonna be multiple still in other words are going to run multiple formation and they've got some wrinkles so one formation they love to throw out there is a two-four-five, two defensive linemen, four linebackers, five defensive backs. And when they do that, um, a lot of times they'll have three safeties on the field. A lot of times that was Brent Nelson before he got hurt last year. He was essentially a nickelback covering the, the slot, right? Could D'Angelo Amos also do that? Again, Chris Moore was a little bit of a hybrid in that two, four, five sometimes, where he was technically one of the four linebackers, but in some ways, that's really a what would that be a two three six, <laughs> right? So that's one way to get a lot of defensive backs on the field is through uh, creative formations and creative alignment.
1: How about uh, Antonio Clary starting to see some time early last year before he got hurt. Where does he kind of factor into the dynamics there?
2: Yeah, he's a guy that. Um... Uh has good size. Um yeah, played last year as a true freshman um until he got hurt, uh, I believe Notre Dame game around that kind of uh around that time frame. Um but uh but yeah, he's a promising looking and he's he's a true safety in my mind. He's got that physical build, like he's six one or six foot six one, looks you know over two hundred pounds rock solid physically so he definitely has that safety build i see him as a safety all the way so i'm anxious to see what he can do i mean i think he there was some buzz about him last year um in preseason and then obviously he got some time so he was a guy that impressed the coaches enough um uh last year so i'm anxious to see what he can do again he's physical uh looks confident out there so uh um yeah, definitely. Um, He's he's a guy that I have definitely written down as a guy that I'm anxious to see and how how he uh, moves forward uh, this year. And again, kind of going back, you know, I, I think uh, it's going to be interesting. You know, Darnell Pratt, some of the guys that we don't know a lot about. I think um, you know one of those guys I think could could surprise. So that's going to be interesting to see.
1: Could some of these guys factor in on special teams? You think um, some more than others, probably. But there's some. Uh, rules being modified with the covid situation and you know red shirt rule being one of them so what do you think chris right on that front
0: right so technically the new ncaa rule of a couple of years ago was you could play in up to four games and still red shirt well the ncaa froze eligibility for all fall sports meaning your eligibility doesn't count this year <laughs> so you can play in more than four theoretically and still uh, retain a red shirt so now that's gonna lead into all kinds of roster management stuff, which we can talk about some other time, right? You can't if, if they don't extend the 85 scholarship limit, just because they have frozen eligibility doesn't mean they'll they'll have a fifth and sixth year available from individual programs. Um, scholarship limit holds. So a lot to still figure out there, but it does give you the option of using guys in roles that maybe you would be a little more cautious with otherwise. So for me, special teams, particularly with the spread hunt formations you see in college. And then kickoff coverage in college, you need guys who can run, who can tackle in space. Well, those are defensive backs in general, right? That's kind of what they do. So, um, if you have a lot of those guys available, you might be able to use them in those special teams roles. And then Angelo Amos, you know, sounds like uh, he he could be in the mix as a returner potentially. Um, Maybe you know he he had a a big role as a punt returner at JMU. Um, So I have a feeling he's going to factor into. Um, some special teams one way or the other. I think he also blocked a couple of kicks uh, on special teams.
2: Yeah, he seems like a special teams demon and punt return. uh, Again, last year, I think I've spoken about this before, is Billy Kemp I think was uh, very very solid, serviceable, reliable, which is reliable is huge with punt return. (laughs) I think Virginia fans with some of the past uh, punt returners that have come through the program, reliability is huge, just catching the football and make sure that you don't turn the ball over or make bad decisions. <clears throat> but uh, you know, I think D'Angela Amos uh was really a special punt returner. Now that was on the SCS level. How can he translate that to uh the FBS level? I, I think that's a position where um or that's either you know, that's a situation where you um, you just have a knack for it really. And I think uh some guys do, some guys don't, and I think that we'll be able to transition and I think he'll do well. And speaking of you know, Shane Simpson mentioned him as as a as being an impact player as a punt returner. And Simpson, it's interesting. He's coming in with the track record as a kick returner. However, with the with the bodies uh, or with the dwindling depth at running back, do they put him at kick returner now? Since they really need him at running back, so that's going to be interesting to see. Maybe Amos can um, can play some kick returner as well.
1: Well, just in terms of offense, defense, special teams, do you think UVA stacks up okay on on special teams? Is that maybe one of the shakier? Parts of those those three aspects of the game, going into this year.
2: I mean, you look at field goal. Brian Delaney obviously took. You know, he keeps getting better and better each each season, so you have to feel pretty good about uh, him as a field goal kicker and on kickoffs. Um, Nash Griffin is back. Uh, he's up for the Ray Guy Award for the uh, nation's best or preseason mentioned as a, you know, a candidate for that Ray guy award for the nation's best punter. And I think he seemed to be more consistent as the season went on last year. So I expect good things from him. And then of course, you know, Joe Reed was Joe Reed. He was just fantastic. Uh, Shane Simpson, again, uh, I thought he was a guy who could come in and, and, uh, make some uh, really fill that spot. But again, I think they probably will, I would assume they'll err on the side of caution with him. And then, yeah, punt returner I think was solid. Um, uh, but, you know, Amos, again, seems special as a returner. But if he can block some kicks as well, you know, watch out for that. So, it, uh, you know, I, I think they have a – they should be pretty good heading into the season. A few question marks, but I think they'll be pretty good.
0: I think when they added the 10th assistant coach, Ricky Brumfield, brought him in specifically as special teams coordinator, that that unit as a whole has been slowly improving. And I think you're seeing that in the hidden yards territory, right? Virginia does really well in field position. And I think some of that is because they don't allow very many punt returns. So not a lot of yards there. And then they've been pretty good in kick coverage um, over the last two years. So hidden yards is the area I think they've improved in on special team.
1: Very good. We'll talk UVA basketball and a little bit of music coming up next on the Sabre.com podcast. All right. Segment three of the saber.com podcast this week, Jeff Swetman joined by Chris Wright, Chris Horn of the saber.com and well, Let's talk hoops. Gentlemen, there was uh, an interesting question posed on the message board uh, just recently. And shout out to 3U Circle, by the way, joined almost exactly 21 years ago. So that's amazing. 5,000 posts later. He's still, uh, still with Saber.com, And he was wondering what comes first, Coach Tony Bennett's 300th win at Virginia or his 100th loss. So he's 277-96 and in 11 seasons. So, you know, all who's fans, you know, we're probably going to assume or hope that he gets to the uh, 23 wins before the four losses there. But uh, he might, you know, he's looking at catching Terry Holland for uh, winning his coach all time that could happen, I guess, in 2022. So pretty awesome stuff. And uh, what do you guys think of the over-under there?
0: I love that question, right? Because on average, 23 wins the last several years is a low year. So you're kind of assuming, okay, if they have a full schedule, 23 sounds like they're going to get there. The question is, would they get there before four losses, right? And right now we don't know the schedule. So that part's interesting. Is it a full schedule? Is there a non-conference schedule? Um, Does the ACC – try to stick it to virginia or something crazy so what let's just let's play hypotheticals because you know it's COVID 19 and that's what we can do so let's say that one non-conference game they preserve is villanova madison square garden let's say that's the season kickoff event or something all right and then let's say the acc gets mad and says at duke at north carolina at florida state to open that might like (laughs) influence my answer a little bit right i mean if those are your first four games are they going 0 and four probably not but (laughs) if they went two and two then you'd have to go 21 and two the (laughs) right yeah so but i do love the question because i think it's fascinating because we could sit here and actually debate that that 23 wins before four losses is a
2: realistic debate how crazy
1: is that
2: (laughs) just the fact that that's a realistic debate is uh crazy (laughs) it's still (laughs) crazy just to think how far uva has come under tony bennett i mean that's just uh man that is a just a fantastic question i wish we had a regular uh a normal season coming up uh to be able to more accurately debate that but um yeah great question uh if it's a shortened season unfortunately i'd have to lean towards the four losses first but uh yeah, but no, great question. And again, the fact that it's a legitimate question, it's just kind of hard to believe. Um, yeah, that <laughs> uh the program that got shellacked by Tennessee turned it around in such a major way and has just been pounding everybody else since uh since that that game uh you know several years ago and what a program it's become. So it's just uh just amazing to think about. But yeah, shout out for that question. Great question.
1: You know, guys, as we look ahead to what will be a strange and hopefully eventful season, as these top five kind of preseason predictions are are looking pretty good for UVA, um, what would that schedule look like then if it does go all ACC? Would it be 20 games then total? How many games have you guys heard thrown around, or have we even gotten to that? Have we gotten that far yet?
0: we're not in that that phase specifically yet but but the acc has moved to a 20 game schedule um was that last year or the year before where they Mm. went from 18 to 20 but so, so i think 20 conference games would be a pretty significant season you know what i mean you could play twice a week for for 10 weeks um conference games only and that would line up fairly well with um if you push back conference tournaments in the NCAA tournament potential bubble which we talked about last week that would kind of dovetail nicely into there but um, I think we're just kind of in a holding pattern until early September for the NCAA to kind of say will there be a delayed start will there be a full season will there be you know whatever just like what what it might look like but I, I think if it's conference only 20 games is probably doable because all the conference schools conference will be required to follow the same protocols and all that sort of thing
2: yeah a lot of bubble talk so Chris do you think Uh, you think there's a doable bubble for the NCAA at all? I think for the tournament, it's very doable. Whether that fits really well with
0: the student athlete model. And that's something that coach Mendenhall mentioned this week when someone asked him his personal feelings, he's like, well, I'm conflicted because personally I kind of see where canceling makes sense and student comes first. So if the other students aren't in class or we're all in class virtually or whatever, but my guys want to play and I think I can keep them safe. Right. So Putting that part of the, the question aside, is it okay to, to do a bubble? <laughs> um, I do think it's logistically possible to figure out how to do almost College World Series-like where you have maybe you know X amount of locations that host three or four teams and you get through two separate kind of mini tournaments or, or whatever. Um, I think it might be doable.
1: Well, within the past week, you guys probably saw where Coach K uh, from Duke said that we basically have to have March Madness this upcoming year. Uh, And he threw out a a number. I'm trying to find the quote here. Something like 98, 99% of the NCAA's money comes from March Madness. Now, I'm not sure what exactly he was talking about there. Is that the overhead of the NCAA as an entity? Or, uh, you know, maybe talk about that in terms of uh, (laughs) maybe the urgency of uh, (laughs) – the upcoming college basketball season.
0: Right. I think that's right. The NCAA as a, a organization, the bulk of its money comes through the basketball tournaments. So, um, you know, they don't get money from the college football playoff directly. They don't run it. <laughs> that's run by uh, the college football playoff group or committee or whatever you want to call it. So basketball is run by the the organization itself and they lost out on that money this past March. You know, what, what would that look like? It's hard to say. Would, if you're going 64 and you're including the little guys too and all that kind of stuff, what does all that mean? Um, is the tournament the same? If you don't, there are all kinds of questions we could ask about that. But in terms of uh, having money to run an organization, that's where the bulk of the NCAA money comes from.
1: Chris Horn, any uh, thoughts on that process of maybe even scooting back the season or if we get into December and it's we're still kind of in this limbo that we're in now? I mean – I don't mind there being March Madness in May, June. (laughs) I was cool with that this year. (laughs) If they had maybe, there's maybe a way they could have pulled that off. But uh, I guess everybody was kind of waiting to see how things turned out with the NBA and NHL and and Major League Baseball who've all had their issues. But, uh, you know, would you, you know, that'd be all right by me playing, still playing college basketball in the summer summertime
2: <laughs> yeah i think a lot of people would be fine with that um <laughs> for sure me too uh yeah i mean i don't i don't see why they couldn't move it back at least toward to, to may um in hopes of uh you know something something coming forth and uh you know maybe we learn you know who who knows whatever would come forth that that could help that happen um kind of like chris mentioned though as far as kind of wrapping my head around um, if it's kind of status quo, like what happens with the smaller schools, and then they try, you know, and then they try to have like an NCAA tournament. That's I'm not sure what how the smaller schools would factor into that, and that's obviously always a. Um, well, it, it wasn't fun for UVA for uh, for one year for sure, the the smaller school beating the bigger schools, but that's obviously always a, such a huge part of uh, March Madness, and, and again, I'm not sure how that how that would work, but. Yeah, I think they're, they're doing every – I'm pretty confident in saying they're doing everything they possibly can to figure out um, a way to make uh, March, April, May madness or whatever you want to call it uh, this year work. The, the catch
0: with the little guys is testing expense, right? It's the same reason that all these little conferences have already punted football and ACC and SEC and Big 12 have not. They, they can afford the expense of testing – regularly two or three times a week you can these small conferences do that in basketball where they're to meet the protocols in order to get a full season uh worth of a resume to be included or would you just take i don't know the 2019 south champ instead and they have to be th- very complicated from a testing standpoint um depending on developments there right there ongoing testing creations and all that sort of ha- sort of stuff happening um, as more and more things happen with the COVID virus. But um, that's that's kind of maybe the hardest part to figure out is what would the protocols be and could small schools meet that demand?
1: Well, and uh, being from the state of Illinois, I happened to notice the blurb the other day about the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. They, they've got a rapid saliva-based COVID-19 test. It's under the umbrella of an approved FDA emergency use authorization. So They're hoping maybe that something like that can be expanded out to more places. And, you know, maybe the solution comes from one of these universities. Wouldn't that be nice to uh, get some clarity there? And I think it's similar to the test that's been used by the NBA so far in their bubble. Obviously they've got tons of resources to be able to pay those expenses that maybe the colleges don't have, but uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting and we'll follow the developments for you. Uh, Chris, you want to add something to the the testing there?
0: Well, not the testing, but if they can figure something out just so we can see Hauser, Huff, and Clark together,
1: <laughs>
0: um, I think that's something all Virginia fans, 100% of Virginia fans, agree with that statement. We would <laughs> love to see Hauser, Huff, and Clark play together. This is probably the only chance you'll get because I don't think Huff and Hauser would stay around even if they were granted another year eligibility. They're getting older and they're – Earnings clock um, needs to start, right? So um, this is our one chance. So yeah, let's let's hope something on some level of testing or vaccine or both or whatever <laughs> gets figured out, just so we can see that, see those three <laughs> guys play together.
1: <laughs> well, I personally am super excited about Abdul Rahim too. Is <laughs> there any thought to him being a one and done? Could he be UVA Tony's first one and done? <laughs>
2: i i'm gonna say no i hope not (laughs) but i think uh uh he's got a he's definitely got a um pretty neat skill set i think just uh you know six seven can handle the basketball can do a lot of good things as well but I, i could see two i would not say one at this point just based off of what i've seen so far but you never know some of these guys get to college and um uh, and, you know, I don't think he'll be redshirted like uh, DeAndre Hunter was, that's for sure. I think he's going to play. Um, <clears throat> but uh, I would say two years and then Virginia fans can maybe start start looking at that clock. But um, we'll see. You never know. All
1: right, guys. Well, we'll uh, delve into the world of music. And uh, the Turning the Tables segment is next, talking about musical offspring next here on the Saber.com podcast. Front Porch is a nonprofit roots music organization, and we connect everyone through music. I like the way that the front porch encourages people to to sort of engage with their community and sort of enlarge the community. Everybody is included, and that's really what the word community is about. You know, making sure that everybody has their chance to have a good time and and participate and add something.
0: All right, welcome back. It's time for the Turn of the Tables music segment. I'm Saber editor Chris Wright. Uh, we're putting Jeff Sweatman uh, in his expertise area here with music. Um, we like to mix things up, see if we can get an, either build off a of message board threads that we've seen from our users during the week or start one um, that fans can talk about. And and since we finished up that last, last segment with Abdur Rahim, we were we were talking during the break there. Sharif Abdur Rahim is his father. He was the number three overall draft pick by the Vancouver Grizzlies <laughs> uh, who are now the Memphis Grizzlies. Um, so you're talking Jabri Abdurrahim, son, offspring, and it all ties into what we want to talk about this week. So um, Justin Towns Earl passed away this week. I got to do a little tribute segment to him um, through this. His father was Steve Earl, won three Grammy awards. Uh, lots of country music uh, folks have recorded his songs from Willie Nelson and uh, really anybody you can think of, Johnny Cash on down the list um i think we did mention recently on a podcast that uh or in a message word thread one or the other listening to full albums all the way through my most recent yard mowing which is happening way too often jeff and i talked about that <laughs> having to mow the yard like every day um i listened all the way through the legend of johnny cash kind of best best of hits recently so uh johnny cash ties in there as well his daughter roseanne cash um is someone we could put it
1: yeah. in the offspring
0: segment, but yep. all of this coming up because Justin Towns Earl passed away this week. Um, what can you tell us about that? And I know you interviewed him in your uh, previous job.
1: Yeah, 2009, he uh, stopped by the radio station. He was on a tour at that point with Old Crow Medicine Show, David Rawlings' Machine, which was basically David Rawlings and Gillian Welch, and uh, longtime musical partners, and the Fleece Brothers. And they all four, it was, it was like an old-time review show where all four of them were basically on stage the whole time and playing each other's songs and collaborating on cool covers and stuff. It was an amazing show at, uh, back then, I think it was just the sprint pavilion or no, it was Charlottesville pavilion back then. (laughs) It's gone through a few different names, but, uh, yeah, he was a very personable guy, you know, uh, kind of quick wits and just a very dry sense of humor, but, um, being the, the offspring of a famous musician like Steve Earle, he didn't really know uh, Steve growing up too well, as uh, Steve had his own troubles with addiction and, and in and out of jail and things like that uh, as he was trying to get his musical career started and uh, definitely caused him some bumps in the road. But uh, I guess as a, a late teen, he um, he and his dad, you know, were sort of thrust together in, uh, in life and lived together for a little while. And uh, Justin had dropped out of school early and, you know, had his issues and, and demons that he battled throughout his life. So, you know, sometimes those musical genes can be a, a blessing and a, and a curse. And that was kind of the case with him, but man, he was such a talented guy. Always got rave reviews, got some Americana awards and nominations and things. And he was really kind of at the forefront of that revival of, you know, old timey bluegrass, whatever you want to call it. it. It's come to be known as Americana in recent years. And they even have an award show in the fall every year in Nashville for these artists that don't really get mainstream country play. They don't really get mainstream AAA play even on stations like the corner, but uh, they're sort of in between, you know, Sturgill Simpson and Jason Isbell have been kind of at the forefront of it and the Avett brothers and uh, Mumford and Sons. You could even throw in a little bit into that. The Lumineers have, have have gotten pretty big um so you know some of that is now arena rock really uh because there aren't really many rock bands left that can play arenas unless they're the bands that were around in the original arena rock era <laughs> the 70s and, and that 80s. was
0: actually a that was actually a thread recently on the corner message board as well like uh who is the last great rock band that we've seen you know radiohead i think was one that came up in that thread but yeah uh the killers was who started that thread so yep. i don't know what you
1: yeah anybody off the
0: top of your head fit into that who's the last great rock band that we've seen
1: man that's a tough one i mean i probably go back to my morning jacket and arcade fire i could you know two bands i think i have mentioned before here um but even them when they headlined supposedly bonnaroo what 10 years ago by now they were both kind of co-headliners they couldn't one of them by themselves couldn't really headline Bonnaroo. So you still had to, you know, they each got you kind of split the time there. But, uh, you know, I was thinking of like the, all the Beatles, basically. You've got James McCartney, Paul's son. Uh, Zach Starkey is a, a pretty renowned drummer in his own right. After all these years, uh, son of Ringo Starr. Uh, he's played a lot with the Who. Uh, Zach has. Uh, Danny Harrison has done a couple things, uh, you know, offspring of George and, uh, John Lennon's sons Sean and Julian have have had pretty notable music careers too, but uh, it is tough, you know, to follow in your your famous mom or dad's footsteps. Jacob Dylan certainly found that out. He he had a, a Wallflowers album that came out that nobody cared about, and then he started going by Jacob Dylan because he was, started using Jacob Zimmerman, and then he decided, no, okay, I'll I'll actually admit that my dad is Bob Dylan <laughs> and talk about him maybe a little bit in interviews and. Uh, Cause you know, they don't want to do interviews where they get asked that same question every single time. And, uh, you know, Justin rolled with it pretty well, pretty much every interview I've ever seen. There's some reference to his dad or the fact that his middle name was towns after towns van Zant. And so he was just, you get bombarded with that sort of thing. And, and I'm sure it weighs on you creatively for sure. But, uh, but yeah, the the Wallflowers had that one big album and then that was kind of it for them. But, uh, my yeah, parents
0: so, were kind of a country household. Mm-hmm. Um, so my dad was a big Bocephus guy, Hank Williams Jr. Yeah, yeah. So Hank Williams Sr., Hank Williams Jr., Hank Williams the third. Yep. We mentioned Johnny Cash and Roseanne Cash, leading in there. But you go with
1: well, Woody Guthrie and Arlo Guthrie. Now that you mention the uh, the Williamses, that brings the Guthries right now, yeah, to no. mind. <laughs>
0: uh, you've got was it Waylon Jennings? Does
1: yeah, Shooter Jennings. He's, he's Shooter become, Jennings, right? He's a really great producer now, more so than even his own music. He's known for like working with really cool people. So,
0: uh, and then of course the Juds, mom and daughter were
1: <laughs> yeah in the same band. That's we're right. the Juds, right? So <laughs> uh,
0: a lot of country offspring kind of fit into that. You know, yeah. uh, kind of the generation, I guess, a little older. You know, my parents' generation into my generation, kind of blending together. So I could think of a lot of country. Country tie ends, but probably just because of who I was hearing in the household.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's where Justin started out a little bit with the Dukes, which came to be Steve Earle's backup band. And then by then, when that was official, Justin had already kind of formed his own solo career. But uh, yeah, that could be kind of a combination there of like offspring or maybe like family bands that actually had family members in them of multi-generational, not just brother bands, because those are too easy. <laughs>
0: Where does uh, Robert Randolph and the family band? Is that an oh, actual
1: family band? <laughs> it is. Yeah, I think there's some cousins and yeah, brothers right, and so sisters in that one. Yeah.
0: You mentioned the pavilion. I saw them play um, at the pavilion. So that was yep. one that came to mind for me. So,
1: <laughs> Yeah, we'll get yeah, that going. So, and that's the cool thing too about those playlists. We can, uh, we can keep adding stuff to them as people think of stuff on the threads. So, yeah, so we've been doing in. that
0: weekly. We, <laughs> Post the podcast, and then start a thread with whatever our music musings of the week um, were. So we'll do that again uh, and chime in there. Like, who can you think of? Did we miss any? Do you like or dislike anyone uh, that we mentioned, right? So if you can't stand country and don't don't want to chime in on that part, that's fine. Um, and, and on down the list, you know, any, anything that you want to contribute there. You know, we're, we're just trying to have fun with the segment, basically. Something that's talk about um kind of make our podcast a little bit different as a uva podcast so if you're not subscribing i guess find find us on one of those itunes or whatever subscribe um, so you know when we upload these versus having to find them on the website um and i think you had a song in mind that you wanted to play us out with so i'll let you lead us out with the song you had uh, in mind
1: yeah, this is the one from Justin Townsville that got him some Americana Award notoriety. And it's uh, it goes back about 10 years, but it's uh, Harlem River Blues. So there you go for turning the tables here on uh, the com podcast.